Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Hello. This is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, March 5th, 2020. We're broadcasting live from Duval County, and a big thank you to our readers of the Living Lives blog, who gave us feedback on what to do about seminars and webinars. We stopped planning for a live event because of travel concerns, but we are full steam ahead on webinars. Thanks to Eric, we discovered a bug in the feedback form just a few minutes ago, which we've now fixed. So those of you who tried to give your feedback and couldn't will probably have no problem. Based on the preliminary feedback, it sounds like a 90-minute webinar on each topic will hit the sweet spot. And a workbook on each topic is what everyone seems to want, whether they attend the uh, webinar or not. We can do that, especially with your help. If you go to the home page of livinglies.me or livinglies.wordpress.com and donate as much as you think you think this show and our blog is worth to you. As many of you know, we were planning a big event for hundreds of people in Santa Monica, California. The coronavirus outbreak has interfered with our plans for any live event. We just don't know how to plan it. The warm weather is supposed to make the virus dormant or kill it off or something, but we, we don't know how warm it has to get for that to happen. So we're proceeding directly to phase two, at least for the time being, which is the publishing of 90-minute webinars on each of the topics uh, that I'm going to review tonight and we'll be adding topics, too. Each participant in the webinar uh, will receive a certificate of completion from GTC Honors, Inc. Uh, for each webinar they complete, and we will apply for, and we have no doubt that we will receive, as we have in the past, CLE credits from the Florida Bar and other state bar associations for each webinar for those lawyers and accountants who wish to attend. Concurrent with each webinar will be a digital downloadable workbook published for that topic alone. Each user will have a single license to use anything in that workbook for themselves on behalf of their own case, or if they are a law, if the user is a lawyer, the license extends to all clients of that lawyer as long as the material is used by that lawyer. Uh, PowerPoint presentations will be viewed as part of the webinars uh, where appropriate, and uh, authorized users can view the webinar uh, up to five times uh, without any uh, charge. Uh, 
In addition, or extra charge, in addition, an accurate transcript of the seminar or webinar will be provided to all participants after the webinar is completed. And we're still figuring out how to do the watering hole idea through virtual media. Uh, some of you may recall after the live seminars, we usually gathered at the hotel bar to have a few laughs and discuss some things in depth. Now, courtesy of Corona-19, we're figuring out a cost-effective way to do perhaps even a monthly watering hole subscription for participants in the webinars and maybe even allow non-participants into the virtual room. We'll get back to you on that. So before wasting any more time, here is the projected syllabus for our webinar schedule subject to change in my sole discretion. 20 points in less than 30 minutes, less than 90 seconds per topic. Number one, what trust? An overview of securitization. Sit, saw, sap is all you need to know. SIT, securitization in theory. That's one thing. SAW, saw, securitization as written. That's another thing. It's different than SIT, securitization in theory. And then SAP, securitization as practiced, is different from SIT and SAW. That's all you really need to focus on. There's no trust, no beneficiaries, no trustee in relation to the debt. I'm not president of the United States, even if I say I am. Even if somebody else says I am, I'm still not president of the United States. Saying that they are the tr that there's a trust or beneficiaries or a trustee does not mean that they have any relation to the debt um, uh, of a borrower. If the debt has not been entrusted to the named trustee for the trust, then there is no legal or equitable doctrine that would support the claim that the trust owns the debt or the mortgage or deed of trust. Number two, tier the rescission. On paper, it works like a charm. In practice, none of the courts, that is no judge, is applying this statute, 15 U.S.C. 1635, as written and as commanded by the Supreme Court of the United States. The debt remains but the note and mortgage are void upon mailing of the notice of rescission in U.S. mail or upon receipt if other means of private delivery are used. The creditor or their representative must issue a satisfaction and release of mortgage or deed of trust, send back the canceled note, and return all money paid by the borrower. After the creditor does all that, then it can demand payment of the debt. But most such demands are now barred by the statute of limitations, which is one year, until it claims. Remember that the debt is subject to collection under the new statutory scheme of um, uh, un under uh, uh, 15 U.S.C. 1635, not the note and mortgage. The, of course, the applicable case decision is Jessenowski issued in 2015, unanimous decision penned by Justice Scalia. 
It's now currently under review again by the Supreme Court of the United States. The question is, will the revolution of the courts be turned back? Number three, why lawyers should get involved? Simple answer. If you're willing to work at it, you can win most of these cases because the opposition has nothing real. And you can make a lot of money doing it, especially if you file actions for violations of FDCPA, RICO, etc. Lawyers who followed my business advice in 2008 using the hub-and-spoke business plan that I created literally made millions of dollars. Today, there are the same and even larger opportunities. Number four, you signed, didn't you? Legal presumptions. The judge wants to dumb it down, and the foreclosure mill is happy to oblige. It is up to you to effectively challenge the presumption and raise the opposite inference, even if you can't absolutely prove that they are proceeding without ownership or legal control over the debt. The inference, which arises from their refusal to answer questions in discovery, is an, the inference is enough to defeat the presumption, which then forces them to come up with actual proof in lieu of the presumption of facts that they're asserting. They can't. You win. Game over. Number five, absence of evidence, discovery strategies and tactics. Discovery is the place where these cases can most often be won, although I have won several uh, cases strictly by what happened at trial. And I rested without putting on any evidence after the foreclosure mill rested. The place you want to be is where the foreclosure mill refuses to answer simple, direct questions that lie at the heart of the foreclosure. Who is intended to benefit from this foreclosure and why? It's to, if it's to repay the debt because they paid value in exchange for ownership of the debt, then fine. But if it's for profit, then you win, they lose, game over. In every case I have reviewed, it was for profit, where there are claims of securitization. Presentation and persuasion is extremely challenging and important to get a judge off dead center and at least consider the facts as they are instead of what is presumed. Ob number six, objection, lack of foundation. That's the main uh, objection. Of course, there are others, hearsay, uh, best evidence, etc. Rules of evidence and objections probably need more than 90 minutes on this, but we'll do what we can within the 90 minutes. Objections should be raised regularly and timely and consistently. Always have case law on objections on you at all times, in your phone, on paper, every way you can. Object the moment opposing counsel starts to talk and starts saying things about a trust or a trustee or investors, or whatever, because it's all bull. And your objections should be directing the court's attention to the fact that you consider it a matter and issue as to the existence of the trust, the existence of the trustee, 
actively managing the affairs of a trust and the entrusting of the debt to the trustee, which never happened. Also, in connection with these objections, consider interlocutory appeals. I think they are very much underused in, in many situations where they could be used. I think they're overused in situations when they shouldn't be used because you're supposed to wait to the end of the case. But there are many, if you, if you do the research, you'll find that there are many situations where an interlocutory appeal is not a bad idea. Number seven, illegal wrongful auction sale. Proactive litigation does not seem to be working if it is about wrongful foreclosure should be allowed, but most courts are discouraging it to the nth degree. But it does work when suing for statutory damages under the FDCPA. And remember that FDCPA claims, etc., are generally not barred by any statute of limitations if they're part of affirmative defenses. So you should consider filing for damages, even if the damages appear low, you may be able to uh, establish a much greater claim um, um, in addition to the strict uh, violation of statute after they have committed the wrongful act of foreclosure and the foreclosure was completed. Um, I don't agree with that doctrine, but that's the way it is, and so that's what we're stuck with. Number eight, you want me to leave? Defending eviction and unlawful detainer. This is a topic which Charles Marshall has become the go-to guy. By crafting good pleadings and a good solid knowledge and great presentation in court, this is the one place where in non-judicial states you have free reign to challenge title, which is the only basis upon which they can get the eviction or uh, a writ of possession. And that means that you're challenging the legality of the foreclosure auction and the credit bid, which of course is never submitted by a creditor, even though that's what the credit bid is by definition. The results have been increasingly favorable when challenging the foreclosure in unlawful detainer. All of that should be possible before they even get started, but like I said, the courts are not receptive to that. Number nine, bankruptcy and foreclosure. Filing Chapter 7, that's a complete wipeout. Eleven, that's a restructuring under certain circumstances if you qualify. 12, which is for farms. 13, which is an individual restructuring. Uh, but it, 11 is available to individuals too. Uh, so you need to see a bankruptcy attorney who knows what they're talking about. Um, the benefit of filing a bankruptcy, uh, at least momentarily, is that an automatic stay is issued unless you've been filing a series of bankruptcies, um, and that stops the sale. The time to obviously file a bankruptcy is on the eve of sale. 
and automatic and, and filing bankruptcy uh, will allow you to conduct discovery on any claim that has been made. If a proof of claim has been issued, then you can contest that. Uh, if it hasn't, you can actually file proof of claim on behalf of a so-called creditor and contest that. You can also file adversary action challenging the, the ownership and authority over the loan. But you can do that without filing the adversary action simply by putting in issue the, the issues of ownership and authority over the loan. Authority must come from the owner of the debt. Authority must come from the owner of the debt, even if there are several steps to get there. In most cases, in all cases I've reviewed, there is no owner of the debt from whom you could get authority. There is nobody who has paid value in exchange for getting ownership of the debt. They've paid value for other things. They have not received ownership of the debt. And those who have received ownership of the debt didn't pay value. So there is no party that can actually have a claim under U.S. law to collect on a debt that they don't own and they have not paid value for. Number 10, how do I prove? Understanding legal procedure, no statutory scheme involving foreclosure satisfies the constitutional requirements of due process if it allows the court to simply presume there is a legal and factual foundation to do so. In all cases involving loans that are subject to claims of securitization, the opposing side has no facts to support their claim. All they have in all cases are legal presumptions arising from the apparent facial validity of documents that they have fabricated. The answer is to attack the facial validity, which often is easier than you think. If you look at the signature block, you may immediately see defects in the signature block, which therefore means the document is not facially valid. And ask discovery questions that relate directly to the facts and law that they want the court to pursue. They can't answer, and they won't answer, but they will wear you down because the court is going to give them multiple chances to be in compliance with the rules of civil procedure. You need to be aggressive and timely. A missed deadline might be the equivalent of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Most homeowners lose exactly that way. They don't respond at all, or, they are res or they're late in responding. That's wrong. How to figure out the truth. Investigation, affidavits, and reports. This is Bill Padalo's expertise. And there are a few others. You can, Dan Edstrom, for example, but he's not been working so much in this area. You can do your own legal and factual research on the Internet, but you should realize that the results of that basically for entertainment purposes only. You need a real investigator and a real lawyer to tell you what is important and what facts need to be attacked either directly, which is generally impossible, or indirectly, which is always possible, 
and very likely to produce victory. Number 12, but your honor, what to do with the truth? If the judge is leaning away from you, don't tell him or her how stupid they are, no matter how evident it seems to you that they don't know what they're talking about. Never say, but your honor, you don't understand, because the judge will snap back at you and you won't have much to say when they do. Before that happens, you want to start your narrative always with things that the judge will agree with. Start with things the judge will agree with. Don't start on a negative, start on a positive. Those things that the judge agrees with, the, the judge will therefore take a self-evident. The other side will have to agree too because you'll be basically using their points. Then you use those points to show how this case doesn't fit. That's how you argue successfully. Just because you're right doesn't mean you win. You need to present and persuade. That takes a professional in most instances. There are some pro se litigants that have done it, uh, and they've won. There's several hundred of them, in fact. But mostly this is accomplished through people who are accustomed to being in court and know what to do when they get there. Business plans, dollar signs for paralegals and attorneys, how to make money defending foreclosures and going after the banks. There are at least three business plans for lawyers who are out to make a buck on all this. One is representing homeowners, one is representing Wall Street investors, and one is representing cities who have completely failed to apprehend so far that they are victims to false claims and they are losing tax revenue on zombie houses and demolition costs, thus with houses destroyed, it destroys the entire revenue base. These cases brought, uh, would be brought against investment banks, and I can show you how. This is an untapped field. This is for lawyers, not unlicensed entrepreneurs. I won't talk to you unless you have a plan for recruiting for lawyers to do this work or unless you are a lawyer. Number 14, disgorgement remedies. Supreme Court of the United States says just recently, a few days ago, it isn't disgorgement if the money doesn't go back to the victims. I think they're right. If it goes to an agency uh, or some intermediary, uh, it's not really disgorgement, it's a penalty. For that, there are statutes of limitations, but disgorgement itself theoretically can't have a statute of limitations because that would be rewarding somebody who hid their thievery long enough to run the statute. In case of foreclosure and collections by unauthorized personnel, there have been many cases around the country in which disgorgement of illicit gains has been ordered by court to private litigants and to public agencies. Injunctive remedies, remember there's prohibitive and mandatory. If you file to stop them from doing some, you pro something, you probably also need to file for an order requiring them to take affirmative action in order to undo the damage that they're doing. If they have 
no right to be collecting the debt and no interest um, uh, in forwarding the money to a party who has paid value in exchange for ownership of the debt, then they should be stopped from reporting you as a deadbeat. They should be stopped from filing um, uh, false um, documents recorded in, in, the account, in the county registry. And if they have filed those documents, they should be required to affirmatively file such documents as would uh, legally remove those from the county records unless you can get an expungement order, which is rare, in which the clerk physically goes into the file and deletes the item. Um, in most of our seminars, there will be a Q&A session uh, uh, at, at the end of the webinar, probably 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, we may have panel discussions uh, included in some of the, the webinars. The watering hole discussion that I talked about a little while ago would involve me, Charles, and Bill. Uh, probably that, that, that could end up being the panel discussion. Uh, any thoughts that people have on all of this would be appreciated if you write to Neil F. Garfield at hotmail.com. Appellate practice. Remember that interlocutory appeals do apply when a judge makes a key ruling on discovery or objections that would be dispositive of the entire case. So when you have one of these judges that says, for example, you know, you object to this, object to that, he just mumbled under his breath, overruled, 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 because he knows how he wants to rule. Well, if you state the objection properly on the record with a court reporter and you refer to case law and statute and so forth, um, you, uh, unless it's a trial, in which case you're not talking interlocutory appeal, you're talking about a regular appeal. But if it's during the litigation of the case, then you have an opportunity if the issue relates to the essential part of the case, which is restitution for an unpaid debt. So remember also that on appeal, it's not an opportunity to retry the case. It's strictly limited to what the judge did that was procedurally wrong, either because the pleadings or the evidence or both were absent. Mediation. Modification, settlement. Mediation is a great and often overlooked opportunity to shine a light on the fact that the lawyer and the people showing up for the trust or whatever have absolutely no authority to be there to negotiate anything, which violates a court order for mediation unless there's no order. 
So you need to, if the order is not specific about authority to, to negotiate, you need to ask the judge for one, and you usually get it. There's usually one on file with the chief judge or administrative judge that applies to all mediations. But it's always helpful to get the judge to sign an, a separate order because that way you can have a, a pissed-off judge when they show up without authority to negotiate. And if all they can do is offer you uh, a, uh, an application for modification, that's not authority to negotiate. Settlement occurs usually at the 11th hour of litigation. That's when the case is nearly done. As a rule of thumb, I usually tell people not to enter serious negotiations until they receive the third so-called final offer. There it is, 20 points in 30 minutes, as promised. See you next week. Good night. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.